0: Welcome to My Life, Hasidus Applied, episode 272. We are literally at the conclusion of this tishba of nitche. Today is the 10th of Av at the end of the day. Because tishba was on Shabbos, the fast was pushed off till this Sunday. Mashiach has not yet come, even though he still can come before the end of the day. Today is his birthday in the throes of the abyss as the flames were rising to their highest, as the Beis HaMidrash, al-Islam, was burned down by the Romans. For the second Beis by the Romans, 1,938 years ago, and 490 years earlier, by the Babylonians, the first Beis 2,428 years ago, Mashiach was born, as the Medrash tells us. And that's why we say, Nachim, Mincha of Tisha B'Av but because it was Shabbos the fast was pushed off until now now generally I probably would not have done a program but I will never forget 27 years ago the same kavias, the same schedule Tisha B'Av was on Shabbos the fast was on the 10th of Av and the Rebbe came down 8.35 p.m. around a half hour before the fast ended and said a sicha Gave out dollars, and then the might have It's the only time the Rebbe ever did that. So following the Rebbe's footsteps and direction, and that was the last tishbav that the Rebbe would speak to us, tishbav nitche. because next year Chavzai Nader was already the stroke in Tavshinun Beis. So following that lead, meaning the, the need to take the darkest day of the year, the loneliest day of the year, the saddest day, and turn it into something positive, that's why I'm doing the program, standing on the shoulders of the Rebbe. The Rebbe was, of course, edited and was my that sikh It was printed in Aleph, together with the talk that the Rebbe also gave the next day on Yud Aleph of, and it's all printed there. We reviewed this actually last year, which was again the same Kvyas. This is the same as last year. It was also a tish So as the sun sets on this Saturday, we also remember, as I said, that the birth of our salvation, the birth of the redemption happens as well. Because in Judaism, there's no such thing as darkness as an end in itself. And as the Medr says in Echaraba, that there was travels, they were traveling in northern Israel, and they met a farmer, an Arab farmer, who seemed to have understood the language of cows. And he had a cow, and he heard the cow moan, groan. So he told these travelers sad news. Your, dem, your temple was just destroyed. A moment passed and the cow groaned again and he told them, good news. The Savior, Mashiach, was born. Magdim That in the darkest of moments, the temple was not destroyed as an end in itself. It was an order to build even a greater temple, but this time a permanent one, and that's only possible through our effort and through our work. And that's the emphasis, especially as we come to the conclusion of Tisha B'Av and this year Tisha B'Av Nidche. As the Rebbe mm-hmm. explains in the Tovshinun Shemun of of 27 years ago, as well as in many other places, that the panimiyas, the inner power of Tisha B'Av is as the Pasuk says, Yehovcha Yom the L'sosna L'simcha L'maydim Tevim These days will be transformed to celebration. And the Medr says it will be the Moed Gadol. will be the ultimate holiday when Mashiach comes. Because the story is not over. What we see and we experience. And we have to follow the Allah on laws in galus, Is the sadness of the destruction. However the destruction meant to lead to a greater construction. A greater construct. As the Gemara tells us in the end of Makhis. The famous story, Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues were wa- looking at the Har Habayis. This is r- not long after the destruction of the second temple. And they were looking at the temple mount and they saw how barren it was like a wilderness. And they saw Shaolim, fox, coming out from where once was the Holy of Holies, where the Kayan Godel would go in once a year, the holiest place on earth, on the holiest day of the year, the holiest person on earth, connecting to the holiest dimensions of the divine. They saw fox running out from there telling you how it was so desolate. And the colleagues of Rabbi Akiva began to cry. And Rabbi Akiva began to laugh. And when he asked them, why are you are crying? They said, look at the fulfillment of this tragic prophecy. And why are you laughing? He says, because if you read the end of the prophecy, is this is a sign that one day soon there will be the gu'ula. And then in B'zbei the Shashlishi. And that will be far greater than what we have now. Rabbi Akiva perhaps because what he went through in his life, a difficult life, a life that didn't begin with Torah till age 40. Akiva from the word heal, Akev, like Yaakov. Akiva who is a son of converts or a convert himself. He recognized that in the darkest, in the black hole, is the deepest light of all. Today is also 100 years from a powerful letter that the Friedrich Rebbe wrote to the Rebbe Zachayim Mushkin. Dated the the Simcha, Tuf Reish Ayin is printed today in the Igris Kedish of the Friedrich Rebbe, volume 15, page 17. It's a long letter in Yiddish, translated side by side in Hebrew, where he talks about the history of Tisha but written in a very personal way, in a very unique way, worthwhile reading. And he describes the events that he says these two days, says, that's how he starts the letter, these two words, Sishabov, carrying them, and he describes in, this, in his graphic way, all the pain and the grief and the sadness and the blood and the mourning and grieving over the years that we have grieved over the t- destruction of the temples. But he begins even earlier and he says, 3,320 years ago, 3,230 years ago. Was that, now it's 3,330 because it's 100 years later was when Tisha b'a began, when the Meraglim came back with a terrible report about Eretz Yisrael, and that became the Bechil Adedus, the crying that night. That was the first Tisha B'Av, and he said, and the Fridik Rebbe explains that was a result of the Egyptian eff- effect on the Eden and weakening their spirit. And today too we have that. And yet, Gvuris Yisrael, he says, is strong. He concludes the letter after a long description of the events. First the Meraglim, then the destruction of the temples that the strength of the Jews is strong and the flame continues to burn. And as long as we are not affected by those around us, we will prevail, worthwhile mentioning, especially since it's a centennial, it's a century since that letter was written. So the lesson, of course, my friends, is very, very, uh, very relevant and very obvious. And as we are right now, not just talking about it, but actually experiencing the final curtain coming down on Tishabov, Toshabov, Asaraboav, meaning uh, the Tishabov Nitche, the year Tov in Tess. Enough is enough. How many years? It's been nine, 1938. I should mention the letter there from his calculation, the Friedrich Leber, that writes 1951 years ago. So they're, because there are different chashbenists, it's not here to go into it, but it's something worthwhile looking into. Yeah. And he writes about the, the actually he writes about the first on HaMikdash, that's 2,341 years ago, not with me 2,441 now that it's 100 years later. So it's interesting, These discrepancies that can be looked into. I wanted to just mention that. The reason I mentioned the year 19, 1938, because that's the regular cheshben that is often cited, that Rebbe brings it as well. So we have to figure out how to reconcile and how this discrepancy is uh, resolved, just as an aside. So it's almost 2,000 years, 2,000 years sitting Shiva for Abis Amigdash, not just for a building, but for Shara Shamayim, a gate to heaven, an interface, a place where heaven meets earth with God divine met existence that has been closed and concealed but not disappeared. And it's our work today when we sense the gaguim, the yearning, and we sense the the desire and the passion to reconnect and reintroduce, reconnect and realign the fusion of the divine and existence. And we do so through our actions that each act we do is not just a material act, but it's aligned to the way God wants us to behave, whether it's in learning Teirah or in Kima Mitzvah or in tfilah or Gmilz Chasodim. Each specific thing we do, we are realigned, we make that connection, we unite the two worlds that were disconnected and separated in the Chudm Beis amikdash, with the destruction of the Temple. So now as we come to the end of Tisha B'av, what more... What better time? And what more relevance is there is to make that final push that each one of us does whatever we can to connect our lives to what Hashem and the Ebishter wants of us. And that comes down to specific details in how we behave and how we speak and how we think. <laughs> aligned with the way the Teir expects of us. And especially in the biggest mitzvah of all, which was the cause of the destruction of the temple was divisiveness, sinas chinem, baseless hatred, the counter power to that is unity. Talk about unity. The unity between us all together brings the unity with the divine and therefore creates the container for the Beis Hamidosh to re-enter our stratosphere, our world and our existence. And may it all happen before the end of this ninth, tenth of of, especially that it was nitche, so nitche means it was pushed off, that it pushed off the negative parts of it forever and from here on only holidays and only and the lesson personally is equally relevant because we each have our tisha B'av as it manifests in our own personal lives because these events that happen are not just the collective ones for the entire jewish people they have also the microcosm because tisha B'av is that energy the energy of tzimtzum, of concealment of covering of a split, of a schism. So whatever schism or split we experience in our lives, Tisha B'av reflects that. And the correction is to find that unity with our own personal lives and realize that there's even a deeper power in this dark hole. In these darkest moments, at the end of Tisha B'av, lies the greatest strength to transform it, which will be revealed in just a few days from now, in the 15th of Av, which is also this coming, this end of this week. And we'll be talking about that shortly. So, as always, I begin by doing some cross referencing to previous years that we've spoken about Tisha B'Av to fulfill fill the whole picture. So, episodes 127 and 222, which was last year, and of course, episodes 77, 173, we spoke about Tisha B'Av in general. And this is a segue into the rest of the days. What happens next? Okay, the 10th of Av comes to a close. We hope the Gu'ulah comes. Then comes the eleventh of Av, the twelfth, the thirteenth, fourteenth, and then comes Khamisha Asubhaav. At the end of Mesechta Tainis, Mesechta Tainis, which of course is dedicated to fasting. It concludes the same way, it doesn't conclude the fasting, it concludes actually with Chamisha as the story of the 15th of Ov, which is the counterforce to fasting. That just six days after Tisha B'av, five days after the tenth of. Av. So the Mishnah says, pretty interesting equation. Yom Kippur, okay, the holiest day of the year, the day of forgiveness, the day of hope, written in the Tera, Chomish above is not hinted to anywhere in Tera sav. and yet the Mishnah compares the two. And the Gemara elaborates why. And gives a whole bunch of reasons of things that happened. The Rebbe explains that all the reasons are connected, they're all about achdus, about unity. To the, to the extent that is equated with Yom Kippur. Chizdis touches upon this, Ma'amarim and Etter, and other places, and in Eder Tera Nach, that all the explanations of the Gemara still don't explain the power that it should be equated to Yom Kippur, and they explain based on Dariza that Tuba Av is a it's the full moon. Full moon is always a good sign; the moon is in its full power, Malchus is in its full power. The new moon is Malchus, is just being born, but the full moon is it's in full power, full intensity. Complete what Chassidus Kabbalah says, Yichud Zun, Yichud zoha, Malchus. Zohar is the sun, moon is Malchus. So you have the complete unity, the sun, the, the moon completely reflecting the sun to earth. Okay, but that's every 15th of the month. But this 15th of the month says that is all. Because it follows... The Yerida Atzuma, the tremendous, the awesome descent and Pagam, and wound of the moon, of Knesset Yisro, that happened on Tishabov. So Yerida Tzedek Aliyeh, so commensurate to the the descent, is the ascent. Since no other month in the year has such a deep, dark descent in Malchus like Tishabov. so none of them compared to the 15th, when the moon becomes full, it's a completely different dimension. Yes, technically it's the same full moon. But spiritually, it's a whole different story. And that's why Hamish Haasebov is such a great yomtiv. Pesach, Sukkis, Purim even, are all the 15th, 14th, 15th of the month. But they don't follow a tremendous descent. And, and Hamish Haasebov does. To connect it deeper to Yom Kippur, what is, when is Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur will be exactly 40 days from Rishchei Dushelul. When Moshe goes up on the mountain the third time. Now he's on the mountain the second time. And he's not successful yet. But he'll come down to Shehdashel, go back on Shehdashel. Different opinions. The first day of Shehdashel, the second day. The last day of Av, or the first day of El. And 40 days later will be Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur is a a birth. And Rosh Hashanah and El, all from Shehdashel, which comes straight from Av. Says the Shallah that Aryeh. The mazel of the month of Av, the mazel of this month, Aryeh, the Leo, is four letters. Aleph, Reish, Yud, Hey. Roshetav acronym. Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yim Kippur, Yim Kippurim Yim Kippur, All born from Aryeh, the Leo, as the Al Shemani says, that in the month of the lion, came the lion, Nebuchadnezzar, and destroyed the lion, the Baisa Mikdash. al on condition that the lion will come, this time it's Hashem, in the month of the lion, uh, of, and rebuild Ariel, the Beis this which is called Ariel, Ariel, so the birth of El, and Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur, and Shana Rabba, when the Chesim, the of the of the, the the Ksiva is and Rosh Hashanah, when it's written, it's inscribed, on Yom Kippur, sealed on Yom Kippur. And the final seal is But All that is born from the month of Av. Just like Mashiach is born in the darkest moment of Tisha B'av. So there you have the connection. Tuba Av is the great Gilui, the great revelation that comes after the ninth of Av, after the descent of Malchus. And Yom Kippur is the hope. And the forgiveness that came out for the breaking of the tablets on the 17th of Tamas, which was the beginning of the three weeks that concluded with Tisha B'Av, which was broken because of the golden calf. So Yom Kippur concludes the circle, as does Tu B'av. So it all comes together, which also explains why in Tu B'av we begin some custom to start already wishing each other some say it's the gematria of Hamisha HaSib'Av. Because it's not just you're remembering, it's just a nice gesture that we're remembering, we're preparing for Rosh Hashanah, but it's all intertwined. Where you see the powerful Jewish calendar reflects the energies of life, the cycles, the journey. That every descent is in order to bring an ascent and it's all a flow. And our lives as well, to see it through. Never think that any dark moment is the end of the story. See it through, the narrative is not over, the choreography, the hidden choreography is at work. We need to just make sure to keep that strength going. And then for chamisha we go right into Shabbos, Nachmu, next Shabbos, which is what? Nachmu, Nachmu, Ami, double Nachmu, again. Not one Nachmu. Similar to what Akiva said when he, gave, when he smiled, he laughed, when seeing the, even though he saw the desolate Temple Mount. So the, his colleague said, Akiva, Nechamtoni, Akiva, Nechamtoni, double. Akiva, you have consoled us, Akiva, you have consoled us. Nachmu, Nachmu, Ami. A double consolation, because one is not enough. One would not justify the descent. You need to have something greater that the darkness brings even a greater light, a double nechama. And double here is not just in kamos and quantity, but also in quality. So it all comes together, a story of pain, but also a story of joy. A story of loss, but also a story of growth. And that even when something is broken, it can be fixed and become greater than ever before. There's no such thing as impossible. So even if in a relationship, in a marriage, in personal relationships, situations where you may think things have been broken or shattered, remember there's always room for reconciliation and forgiveness and rebuilding even after destruction. That's, the, in a nutshell, the story of this time that we're right now in as Tisha B'av concludes. Tisha B'Av I should mention. The pushed-off Tisha B'av on this 10th of Av. Some cross referencing for this as well is episodes 30, 77, 128, 173, 222. All these archives can be found at meaning, at I'm sorry, at com, a new website that we created exclusively for chsiddis related and applications. It's, of course, centered around the cornerstone of this program, My Life Chsiddis Applied, all the previous 271 episodes plus a forum where you can submit anonymously any question you like. Nothing is off-limits. Nothing is taboo. We cover every question possible in an in appropriate way, hopefully. So please don't hesitate to write anything you'd like in that forum at chasithisapplied.com ask. Also a good opportunity, since the conclusion of yesterday's Haftedah, which is also negative, but concludes with the redemption, that Zion is redeemed through mishpat, through teda, and Rishaveh is captive through tzedakah, that here's a special time to add increase in teda and tzedakah. We're doing that right now by these teachings of this Maylach is supplied. And tzedakah, to increase in tzedakah today, tomorrow, and all the coming days, as the Rebbe emphasizes, and perhaps you could also be so kind and help us Support this program as it grows and to develop more expansive resources by going to slash donate and sponsor a program in honor or memory of a loved one. And I thank you up front. Now, being that recently they've been talking about negative things, some negative news about mass shootings in different cities, in Dayton. In, uh, in El Paso, in Gilroy, California, unfortunately others that have happened earlier in the year, some of them in Jewish locations. So the question somebody presented is, has the Rebbe ever made public statements about mass shootings, why they happen, and what can be done to prevent them? And indeed, I've spoken about this a few times, unfortunately, previous tragedies, in episodes 202 and 203, 258 and 259, that was the recent Poway shooting on the last day of Pesach, this, this, this past Pesach. So yes, there are Sikhs that I will refer to, and specifically Yud Alef Nissen and Yud Beis Thomas Tovshin Mem Alef, and Vov Tishrei and Yud Based Thomas Tovshin Mem Dalad Tov Mem, and Chofof Tovshin Mem Vov, among others. I name, I specifically will just shortly repeat some of what the Rebbe said. Yud based Tamas Tov Shememal. The Rebbe was speaking then, in general, not just. About, he wasn't talking specifically about mass shooting, but about students hitting teachers in schools. In the Yud Al Nissen of that year, the Rebbe spoke about the shooting of Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, and the main emphasis the Rebbe spoke about was the tragedy of cutting out God from the schools. When the single most important thing in education is not knowledge and not information and not the sciences, not the physical, social, and um, political sciences, but to shape a character. And the key to shaping a character is to be accountable and to be moral and to be an ethical human being that gives more than it takes. And that is infused and inculcated in children through teaching them that there's there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. There's a God that is with us all the time and watches us. And by taking God forbid and cutting God out from the schools, we're taking away from the children the single most important foundational element in shaping healthy children. And by the Rebbe, that was the root issue. Obviously, you deal with the symptoms, anything you can, short term and so on. But if you want to get to the root and to how to preempt and prevent. Going forward, we have to educate our children that life is sacred. And the way you behave is, you're accountable. You can't just do whatever you like. We live in a society where basically everyone does whatever they like. Yes, there's certain rules, red lights, green lights, to coexist. But violence is sometimes even worshiped and celebrated in games and sports in the media, and, and television, and film, and so on. So that, of course, has to be addressed as well. But at least equally, if not more, not if definitely more, to teach people about the sanctity of life, the responsibility we have to each other. Now, will this automatically prevent? So of course, people who have always murdered, even when that was taught. But if you want a collective and a mass influence on people, that's what you do on children, who will become adults by teaching them this, and of course, teaching adults as well. And the more we teach it, the more we emphasize that sanctity of life, and the sanctity and the tragedy of taking a life, the more power that we, we empower and we uh, fortify our children and our adults in behaving the way one should behave. That's the gist of the Rebbe Sichus that I just cited. And may we not know of any more such tragedies and hopefully do our part to make sure that we bring up healthy, sensitive, giving, moral, ethical children, become moral, ethical, and giving sensitive adults. Okay. Somewhat connected, perhaps, is the issue of Betochen, something we've talked about a number of times. But the question that was posed this way, does real betachen include believing that everything Hashem sends our way will be revealed good. Hi Rabbi, love your program. Thank you for everything you do in spreading Torah and the teachings of our Rabbim. Question, does having real betochen include believing that everything Hashem will send my way will be a revealed good? Is it not enough to feel comfort in the fact and believe that Hashem is only good and that ultimately whatever comes to me is in fact good and that I just may not experience it that way on the surface? Good question. So in other words, is it enough just to believe God is good and there is good somewhere, even if it's concealed? Or to feel that God will definitely reveal good, in a way that we ourselves will experience it. So firstly, let me refer some cross-referencing. This is a topic that is not a small topic, talked about many times in this program. And just to give you, 111, 113, 194, 231, and 249. And additionally, related was as well on 125, 166, 187, and 190. So there's a classic sicha from the Rebbe, it's printed today in Lekut Sikhs, Chelek Lamed Vov, uh, yeah, Vov Shmois, the first sicha, Batrachgut and brings, what exactly is Betochen, brings from the, of course, Shara Betochen, from the Cheves HaLavovas, from the Ikrim, from the Barabay and from others, what Betochen truly is, that Batochen is not just a munah. It's not just faith. Betochen is actual trust that God will, not just can, but will redeem us from every given situation, even though it may not seem naturally possible. Because we completely trust that God has that capacity. And there it's clear that the Kavan, not just that there be concealed, but actually be in a good way. So trach good, vedzain good, thing good, and it will be good in a way that we can relate to it. So why then does some places of Chesedis and Tanya and other places that speak about chesed, uh, 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 hidden chesed, that are hidden sometimes in, in, uh, in affliction, in yesudim? The answer is, if it doesn't work out that we see it, that still does not mean there isn't good because everything God does is for the good. the l'teva, and the different levels as the Rebbe explains it in different places so even then even when it doesn't appear to us there's still a hidden deeper good in it but betochen is deeper that that deeper good will actually be revealed in our eyes in our lifetime now if you say well what happens if it didn't work out I did think good and it didn't happen that's God's chashbenas but betochen is our end to do whatever we can to have that total confidence and that, and that itself does create and open up new channels. And again, God at the end of the day is the boss and he chooses for some reason not to reveal it yet. It still doesn't mean it's not there, it means it's not revealed. And that's why we depend on the, deeper, the other explanation that within it lies even a deeper good that is, yet not, is not yet revealed but will be revealed ultimately, which is also part of the Betochen, that it will be revealed and hopefully to us as soon as possible. Okay, I rely more on the episodes I already referred to Let's go now to another question. This question already, I can't find a segue. This is just another question. Now, many of these questions were asked several months ago. Just to tell you, we have a backup, but we have to go in order. Sometimes I consolidate some of the questions, but generally speaking, I go in order. So if you don't get your answer, please don't be perturbed. And please don't uh, lose hope. We will address it just in a later program. Okay. So here's a question, which actually is something that happened a while back, but still relevant, so I decided to speak about it. It's in the order of uh, as it was received. What should our reaction be when we hear about women claiming the right to set up a tefillin stand for women, just as Chabad does for men? So this person writing says a headline that was, as I said, several months ago. Dear Rabbi, you encourage us to write our minds and we are eternally grateful for your responses to all questions. Coming from last week and just reading in the news today, this is, of course, several months ago. This goes back to Shvat. It's actually five months ago. Uh, So I'm reading the news. I cannot stop but wonder what this means for us as Lubavitchers. What would the Rebbe say about this? What's our healthy approach to this? In all honesty, can you share with us what goes through your mind when you see this? And the writer writes, sends me a link of women for the wall, women of the wall, as the way they've been coined, who are not just trying to insist to be able to put on film by the wall, but also they want to open up, they start a film stand, and to put film on women, just as Chabad, they claim, is doing for men. So, what, so the question is, what do I think about this? What, what should we think? Thanks a lot. Looking forward to your response. So firstly, I spoke about the topic of Women of the Wall in episode 98. I'll speak very bluntly my reaction. My reaction is I feel sad. I don't feel angry. I don't feel we have to boycott or become vindictive in any way. I feel sad. I feel sad that we've not done a good enough job to educate men and women of our generation what a mitzvahs what film is, what men are, what women are. It's not a discrimination against women that they don't put on film. It's as much discrimination against women than Shabbos we also don't put on film. If film is such a great thing, why don't we put on film on Shabbos? It binds the mind and heart to God. So the Gemara says, because you need two aces, you need two signs. On Shabbos, Shabbos itself is a sign. So you don't need film. Women are compared to Shabbos. Shabbos, Malkus, Shabbos, Queen. So being that they're like Shabbos so all week long, they don't need that film. They themselves are like a walking film. They're walking bound mind and heart to God. Yes, there was Michal Bashal, the daughter of Rashi, who put on film, just like you say about Rosh Hashanah, that you don't blow shofar when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos. Because Shabbos itself does what Rosh Hashanah does. I in the of did blow shofar because there's a level of Hamshach that's even higher. But that's an exception. Nobody puts on film on Shabbos. You're not allowed to. I feel sad this is not taught to people today, to men and women, young boys and girls, to understand what means a mitzvah. A mitzvah is binding yourself to God. Each of us are bound to God. There's no such thing as second-class citizens. God created male and female equally. They're both in the divine image. As a matter of fact, they need each other to complement each other. And the distortions that come out of not educating properly become that people then everyone files they find their way that they think is the way to compensate for what they think is an injustice or a lack or a grievance, something they're lacking. That's my feeling on the matter. So our job is to educate and to inspire. Not to boycott, not to pick strikes, not to get angry, and not to yell and scream. That's not the derakate. It's the way to educate. And it's not just about film. It's not about, it's about other things as well, the different roles we have today. Gender identity is in crisis today on many, many, many levels. And it's all due to a very messed up education about who we are, who you are as a human being, as a divine image, and then who you are gender-wise, male or female. And we all have our roles, even within males and within females. All this is today confused. So it's not a surprise that it manifests this way. So this is uh, the only solution I see is education, inspiration, information, teaching, explaining. And not doing it in an aggressive way, and not doing it in a crusade-like way, or in a condescending way, but simply informing, inspiring, like we do with everything else, we live in a generation, people who are unaware, simply born in captivity, most did not get a normal Jewish education. and I say normal, the basics, especially the spiritual basics, which are so vital to really appreciate the picture of Judaism. That's my reaction. Next question. Again, not related, but a legitimate question. This is an interesting question. Are we properly educating newlyweds in the difference between healthy and unhealthy intimacy? So this letter is a little explicit, so viewer discretion advised. I'm going to read it somewhat. I am going to, I don't say censor, but I'm going to modify it a bit because it's very explicit, and again, this does not mean you shouldn't send me letters that are direct, but simply for the public, I don't think everything has to be read exactly the way it is. Without mincing words, I will talk, the the content I'm not going to compromise, but just there's a way of being more subtle and more modest in our conversation as well. In preparation for marriage, this person writes, women are taught to comply to what their husband wants in intimate setting. Are they ever taught to trust themselves first and to identify if this is something they are comfortable with? Are they taught about consent, that they can say no, or I'm not comfortable with that, or I'm not ready for that now, and not be considered a terrible wife? I know for myself I was taught a lot of halachic laws and that the most important thing for all the brachas in the world is shalom bayis. But we weren't taught some very basic ideas about intimacy that I believe all couples getting married need to learn. We also weren't told where to go with questions once married. It's like teaching a kid how to swim outside the water and then dropping them in the deep end and leaving them there to see if they can make it. And we wonder why marriages, some marriages aren't working out. I don't know what goes on in chasen classes, which means for grooms, Are young men getting married, many who have been perhaps abused without receiving help or treatment? Are they taught about consent, about sensitivity, about healthy intimacy? That they're being intimate with their wives, with a wife, if one is being intimate with his wife. And she says, stop, and they continue, that this may be considered a crime. Are they taught about asking and being sensitive to their spouse's needs? Are these ideas in line with Torah? The writer sends me a link about the discussion on this topic. I believe that this is especially important when as much as we might be in denial about it, most boys have education about intimacy long before chasen classes. And unfortunately, that education is not coming from healthy places, which promotes objectification of women And aggressive culture. And on the other hand, women are brought up with this ideal of being a good wife and shalom bias. If you ask me, it's a recipe for disaster, for for unhealthy and dysfunctional marriages. And if nothing is done about it, then another generation that will grow up and be even worse off. Suggestions. Chasson and kala classes that teach a bit more than halacha. Teach about intimacy and healthy intimacy, not just the technical matters of Jewish law. From trained professionals who all couples can have access to seeking help once they're married. Something accessible and available, maybe a hotline for intimacy-related issues right after marriage that can provide guidance and refer couples if, fur- if further help is needed. I know we are taught to have a mashpia. I'm questioning if the mashpiim and mashpias are adequately trained and equipped for these kind of things, and there could be more help made available. What is the Torah view on consent in marriage? Thanks. Okay. So firstly, I spoke about related topics in these episodes. 5, 59, 151, and 152, 212 through 214, about healthy intimacy and educating people in that direction. Now, it's important to preface, and so let me say this. In a healthy home, and we hope to believe that Jewish homes were healthy over the centuries, certain things were taken for granted that when you see a home where a father and mother treat each other with constant respect 24-7, that that rubs off by osmosis on the children and they recognize it. When they see how they speak to each other. Obviously, intimacy is not witnessed, but nevertheless, the environment, the mood, so these things have an effect. Healthy attitudes by parents, parental influences that are healthy, will create healthy children. That's a given. Now, of course, there are challenges that, that can always distort things. Today, we live in a world where, number one, is many parents are not that healthy. And then there's the big open world where so much is seen online and in places that are not appropriate. So there's even more need to make emphasis on these matters. Why am I saying this? Because for those people who know what healthy intimacy and healthy marriage life and healthy shalom biases, and again, it's not just about intimacy, it's a general attitude of respect, which spills over also in intimate setting, sometimes take for granted and say, you don't have to talk about these things, because they have it healthy. It's like a healthy person doesn't need to talk about unhealthy situations. But we have to know there are situations that are not functional. So just because we, few people, breathe well some of us have very healthy breathing. There are people who are struggling to breathe. There are toxins out there. So we have to know how to address that also in a discreet way, not in a, uh, in a way that adds fuel to the fire. So I totally agree that there needs to be a look, and I know that rabbis and mashpiyim and mashpiyas and rabitzins, people teaching chassin and khala classes, are becoming more and more sensitive and more acutely aware of these issues. There's a lot more work to be done, and that's why I'm speaking about it. Yes, we have to make this a primary, a primary discussion, because marriage is based on shalom bayis, and shalom bayis is based on a husband and wife having a good relationship with each other. And sexuality has never been objectified as an end in itself. Yes, Judaism believes in healthy intimacy, and loving, and a sacred intimacy, and all the halachas involved. But it also understands and recognizes part of that sacred intimacy is a menschlichkeit. It's not just about one person getting his needs or her needs met. There's a menschlichkeit. You're constantly aware and cognizant of another person. They're not just there to pleasure you. So, though there's the element of pleasuring and so on, but all done with a certain love and a certain warmth and nurturing, even in the most intimate setting. And it is all comprehensive. What I mean by that is it spills over people's lives, even how they eat dinner together, how they talk to each other, even in seemingly trivial matters, is all part of that relationship. This needs to be taught. Those that are blessed to grow up in healthy homes who've seen it and it's by osmosis, they've picked it up, great. Even there, I would say it's good to be taught and spoken about. Because we all get jaded and we all get taxified and we all get contaminated a bit by what we see around us. So it's good to be reinforced what a healthy intimacy and what unhealthy intimacy is. But especially because there are many not growing up, unfortunately, in homes that provide that or provide it completely. And they're learning it from the wrong places. So yes, this is a critical element, I would say even a crisis that needs to be addressed and preempted, not wait till there's a problem, to be taught and spoken about in a healthy way. Because unfortunately, yes, intimacy is being divorced the, the, the act is being divorced of the sacred intimacy and warmth and um, connection that it's is meant to be. More than just an act, more than just pleasure, more than an act It's about building a relationship, building a relationship with each other, spouses, and through that relationship with God, and through that relationship with your home and family and with the world around you, and bringing intimacy, the sanctity of intimacy, into the sanctity of all of our lives. So, as far as consent, of course, what's the question? A good intimacy is people are, are not just consenting, they want. It's all kinds of halachas of, of not being intimate if one of the two are not really interested or whatever reason, or upset at each other or not prepared, whatever it may be. So, of course, but that goes without I, I don't, I shouldn't. I was going to say it goes without saying. It doesn't go without saying, it has to be said. But that's part of the kind, That's part of the relationship. That there is a sensitivity. And it's not just about I have needs and that's it. And when there's communication and there's, a, and there's a, a, rec- a recognition of each other, respect for each other's space, everything gets more enhanced. As the Rebbe's famous expression, which I quote in the chapter on intimacy in a Meaningful Life, that when you're close, when you should be distant, you'll be distant when you should be close. Okay, let's go to the next topic. What is the next topic? Doubts about the Rebbe. Okay, this question, again, I have to phrase it somewhat sensitively. How are we to react to stories that seem to compromise the the Rebbe? This one also, I'm not going to read it all out loud because... Simply out of respect for our Rebbe. And there's things you say, things you don't say in public, even in private. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. No need to tell you the Hatzolus Nefoshus you are doing every week. My question is as follows. I was listening to a radio show, podcast, which I know you have been on before. This past week, this goes a while back, so it's not this past week, it's the past week when this note was written. They had on a rabbi who told a story about Alabavitcher once wants to have Rav Hutner about the Rebbe having a sefer during his classes at the Sorbonne. Rav Hutner also studied there. And he said something which was not respectful about the Rebbe. Now this rabbi who told the story didn't mean it in a bad way and explained why he said the story. He even said that if his story is true, then obviously Rav Hutner was also not doing something right. What has really been bothering me as a chassez is, can I believe such a story? It makes no sense. I think I heard the Rebbe wore a wig. Is that true? I cannot believe this. It has shaken my core. I do not like it. Please clarify. Thanks. So firstly, let me refer you to episodes where I've spoken about a Rebbe and a Rebbe's perfection and so on. See episodes 107, 121, 198, 199, 255. So, Not sure where to begin. Let me begin with this. First of all, there's a halacha that says, One should not look at a king when he's taking a haircut. One should not look at a king when he's doing other personal, private matters. Now, why not? We know that the king took a haircut. You could see he was before the haircut, then after the haircut. By the Rebbe. We know the the barber would go into the Rebbe's room. We knew before. We knew there was a haircut. Why not? Because we're human beings and there has to be a Hadras Melech. There has to be a respect and awe for a king. And being human, we're often affected when we see things that look a little more human. What's a haircut? Yes. There's an element of a certain respect and distance that so you don't have to be hanging around with the king in his private chamber. Even in a haircut. That's why you have stories at the maskirim, the different secretaries of the rabeim often told the Rebbe they don't want to be his secretary because then they see the Rebbe in a personal setting and could take for granted and they lose sometimes their skashas. The Rebbe Rashaab said this to the Rebbe Chonya Marozov. Chonya Marozov said this to the Rebbe Rashaab why he doesn't, he asked the Rebbe Rashaab said he wants him to help him with certain personal matters. So he says it's going to affect his skashas. He was hoping that the Rebbe Rashaab would either let him go or say, give him a broch, It shouldn't affect. So the Rebbe Rashaab said, yeah, in a chanami, a in a chanami, meaning so, yes, it's true, it may affect or will affect. But what should I do? I need that help. Later when they asked Rabbi Khanya, no, he said, did it affect? He said affect it affected, but it was worth it to hear such a Krish Mishalamita. So I'm wondering what kind of effect it had. But nevertheless, subtly it affected. So that's the first thing when we speak about a Rebbe. The question is, do we should be even sharing stories like this? And this is even if a story may be true, let alone who says it's true. This individual you're quoting, without mentioning the name again, is known to have certain jealousies about the Rebbe and had all kinds of issues with the Rebbe, even though on hand he called himself a friend. So what's it who knows what he thought, what he saw. Was he right? Was he not right? Did he make it up? I'm not going to say he made it up. but Maybe he didn't understand it correctly. Maybe he didn't see it right. Now I know you could say as a Chabadnik, we're all going to say that. So I'm saying two things. First of all, not every story necessarily true. Secondly, even if you have an Edith that says something, who says that we have to parkezich as a chassid in these matters? A Rebbe is a Rebbe, and it's not dependent on whether it looks good to me or doesn't look good to me. There were those that had issues when the Rebbe Rashab, the story of the Rebbe Rashab, went to Freud. So beyond the explanations that I've spoken about in previous episodes, a Rebbe goes to Freud, it's my business. He goes to Freud, he, he knows what he's doing, and I rely on him. He's a Rebbe, he's a Rebbe. And if you have a problem with a Rebbe in one matter, then maybe you have a problem in all matters. A Rebbe does not have to live up to our criteria. Miriam and Aaron spoke about Moshe Rabbeinu. The Jews spoke about Moshe Rabbeinu. And that was not good stuff. A Rebbe is a Rebbe. A rebbe is chosen by God. So even if I have questions, who says you have to ask your questions? This doesn't mean we put our head in the sand and we ignore it. At the end of the day, we know in Golis, even Arizal said al-chet. That Talmudim asked, how could they say al chet? Arizal was shaykh to these uh, sins. So they give two answers. One is, he said it for the generations. Two, bedakus, as a Osip Yisrael, he had it in himself, bedakus, like the story of the Mitle Rebbe. So if you see something, it could be bedakus, some type of subtle thing. But it's not our job to start measuring and saying, oh, if that's the case. What else does it tell us about the Rebbe? So you have to know that be be, be, be open-minded, fine. But in supposed to have a certain respect. Now you'll say, if you never, it's not your Rav yet, and you're skeptical in the first place. So fine, do your due diligence. But once it's your Rebbe, like Rashmul Munk said to the Alter rebbe Manushach, if you're a Rebbe, nothing will happen to you if they arrest you. And if you're not, you deserve what he said you deserve because you took away Elam Hazar, the pleasure of Elam Hazar from so many Siddim, so many Jews. So a Reb is far more than the few things we see. Of course, there's going to be questions. There are questions. People have questions. That's the approach I would take to this matter. And it shouldn't shake you to the core because the Rebbe is a Reb no matter what. And if this is shaking to the core, the question is: what do you, how do you see your relationship with the Reb? Look, Gimel Thomas is another one. The Rebbe said clearly the Gula is going to come in Chavches Nissan and many many Sikhs he said otot, ot. and the Gula did not come, and instead we got Chov Zayin other Gimel Tamos. Of course it could be a big question. The Rebbe said, so the answer is like the Rebbe said many times hot akasha. That goof is the kasha. The Rebbe wrote this in Tov Yud, when he was asked to be Rebbe. They said Vos Zayin. So the Rebbe said Vosved Zayin. We have a greater Rebbe, the Zachem There are bigger things I don't know what will be. We have a big Rebbe, he'll take care of it. This doesn't mean you can't have a question, but the question should not shake you. The Rebbe once said about a moon of faith a question doesn't weaken faith, and an answer doesn't strengthen it. That still doesn't mean we shouldn't have Nasser and Nishma. Of course, especially Chabad, and try the best to understand things, but not in a way that the question is the fundamental truth of it. What that means is, yes, you can question the truth and you can discuss it and so on. But at the end of the day, the unwavering truth remains true whether we understand it or not. And especially when it comes to more compromising or controversial things. So either we don't know the facts, as I said, or it's not in our domain. Maybe we shouldn't be crawling there, it's not our business. And we should be focusing on what we should be focused on, the things we do have understanding of and control of, and the things that we can do to bring the gu'ula. Now if somebody has questions that fundamentally sh- shake their fundamental beliefs in the Rebbe, in the Rabbein, you should have someone to speak to and discuss it. But I don't think it's about one matter. It's going to be probably other matters as well. And I'm not here to convince somebody to accept that truth, that the Rebbe is emiss. If you have that question, you should definitely go speak with a mashpia, speak to someone discreetly, someone you trust, and and work it through. Okay, let's do some follow-ups. So follow-ups, is one follow-up about parental alienation from episodes 269, 270, and uh, actually 269, and and last week. So here's another follow-up on that. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for beginning to discuss the topic of Divorce and Parental Alienation. So if you want to know more information on the actual topic, please go back to last week and uh, three weeks ago, meaning 269 and 271. Um, Yeah. While I don't have solutions, I do want to address the issue further and lay out some of the challenges. Unfortunately, I speak from personal experience. Just as a quick background, both my ex-wife and I are FFB Lubavitches from BT Families. FFB is from from birth Lubavitches, from Balchuva families. We were both educated in the Lubavitch school system. We went on and divorced while on sh- We had one daughter together. After our divorce, my ex-wife did not remain From While we were in the process of divorce, my ex-wife tried to extort a lot of money out of me and my parents. She tried to blackmail me by saying that I didn't give her the money requested. She would tell the court all about my intimacy problems. Of course, I responded I didn't have any such problems to hide, and I would not be blackmailed. Prior to our court date, I sent a mutual friend to talk with her and see if we could come to some arrangement. She said to him that I, my parents, have a lot of money, and she knows how much I love my daughter. The only way she can extort the money from me is through using our daughter as a bargaining chip. Interestingly enough, she comes from a wealthy background as well, and it's true, didn't need my parents' money. We went to court, and she told the court that she feared I was a sexual danger to, my, to our daughter, this is despite the fact that I was the primary caregiver for the majority of my daughter's young life, and just days before she had asked me, as always, to bathe her, dress her, etc. The challenge that one, the challenge is that once the court has the mandate to protect the child from the child's parent, it is very difficult to reverse that situation. Every social worker covers his or her own back, and it is rare to find one who will stand up for the truth. Nevertheless, I was lucky to have professionals who tested testified to my kashrus as a parent. Ultimately, after years of fighting and giving her 150 I got joint custody. This didn't prevent her from, going again going, from again going to the courts with further false allegations of me being a danger and needing to go through the process again until the Office of Child Services shut and sealed the case, saying unequivocally that the change, that the charge was made up. As life has it, she moved away from me and my daughter has been raised not from and my daughter and I have very little contact. I haven't seen her in five years. All this to say that we need some sort of preemptive solution to these situations. One idea I've had is a prenuptial agreement that agrees on a Rav Besdin that the couple legally agrees to go to in case of divorce with a legally binding agreement not to go to secular courts. The legality of such an arrangement would need to be per state country, but I think it could possibly prevent the abuse my daughter and I went through. Of course, I bring all this up so that we can discuss ideas and which means salvation through many different uh, opinions, through consulting with many people. Thank you so much for addressing this issue. I apologize for being so direct, but this is the way the letter was written and, uh, and person wrote it, so that's how I read it. Regarding prenuptial agreements, we've spoken about this. I don't have the exact episode here because that needs to be looked at how what you could do, what you can't do. But it breaks my heart when I hear stories like this, how parents can sometimes, and this is of course one side of the story, maybe there's another side, I always say that. But it breaks my heart because at the end of the day children suffer sometimes for parents' flaws who either are being vindictive or they are distorted or they just don't see clearly. We can be our own worst enemy. That's my biggest comment on that. And yes, we have to do everything possible. It goes back to proper education, proper way of entering into marriages. And when there is a situation, I would, I implore, and appeal, and beg to any father and mother, do what's right for the children. Don't do what's only right, what you think is right. And um, what else can one say? Then the day people have free will to do good things and sometimes destructive things. We should only hear good news. Okay. We also have more on the vaccine controversy, but I'm not going to read more of that because of time limits. I think I covered most of the questions. There's still some more, but I think almost the entire spectrum has been covered. I just want to say one thing as I read the letters. Again, we have a Tera, we have a locha, we have a Rebbe who gave direction, a methodology. This isn't meant that one letter the Rebbe writes to somebody in 1950s about the Salk vaccine is a Gzairus HaKosov, a rule for every situation. But there's a logic that the Rebbe uses about listening to doctors, about Al-Tifrish to follow what most are doing, going to rabbonim, Mashpiyim. There's a methodology. So to go to upset that whole thing, which is the Tata approach to dealing with all issues, including medical issues, is not right, simply put. This, again, does not mean that every letter that Rebbe says this is exactly what we have to do in every given situation. Every vaccine has to be looked at for its own merit, what kind of research was done, who's doing it, as the Rebbe writes there, the laboratories. But this type of approach, where individuals are coming and making their own case, and they're trying to build and find rabbis and doctors who will support them, and they're in a big minority, is, could be somewhat self-serving and destructive, as with all the good intentions. And I think I've said this already, I'm not going to say it again, that doesn't mean there aren't two sides to the story, that all sides be discussed, review it, but go with an open mind, not with a closed-case story, especially if you're not a doctor and you're not a dove. And I think if we put our heads together, we can find good solutions if something comes up that is a new vaccine or something which has been proven to be problematic, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Concerning Chol Yisrael, in last episode, so I spoke about Chol Yisrael, the impact it has on... Amuna on faith. So someone wrote, I wrote the Rebbe asking in the individual if I had to keep Khalissa. Rabbi Khadakov gave me the Rebbe's answer. It was the following. The Usr. as that which is forbidden, es metamtim, dulls or blocks up the mind and the heart. That's what the Rebbe wrote will explain to me that chol akum is an Isr. So this is the Rebbe's answer to this question to this individual. There are many, many such other answers. So thank you for that. And I think I referred to it. But uh, but hearing a, spe- a specific answer is always good. Okay. Now let us do to the question. question of the week. Okay. Let me make sure I covered everything. Yeah. The this question of the week is about. The Mrs. Besden, Dalid Mrs. which is Skilla Herig and Chenek, which we, uh, which of course is in the Halacha and the Mishnah and the Gemara, and we even say in Alchet at the end of Alchet kippur So the question is like this: Hi Rabbi, here is a follow-up question answer to your episode two, episode two seventy. I appreciate it very much. Your answer to the Shluch who asked about the many wives of some of our greats. You explained, The Taylor speaks about things above, spiritual, and hints to allude to things below. I always wondered how Hashem, who is merciful, kind, and loving, can have the fourth death, the four death penalties, which are pretty graphic and severe if you go into the details. Would you say? that Tatum edabed is applies here as well. Meaning that these are all spiritual ma- matters that when it comes down in this world, it comes into the death penalty. Can you pl- please shed some light on this matter? Thanks a lot. Okay. So yes, this is a challenging question because when you re- read the tedim describing these four misses, they're quite uh, gruesome. But first of all, you have to know that the Torah always looked, the death penalty was always frowned upon. It rarely happened, and a Bezdin, a Sanhedrin that put somebody to death was considered a katlonis, even once in seventy years. They were they were marked, branded as murderers, taloch, because murder. It says v'shavto eda You judge the nation to preserve them, to save them, not to hurt them. That's the kavanah of a Sanhedrin, and that's why if you look at the laws. It's almost impossible to find the death penalty on someone because of all the different exceptions and the evidence. And even and unanimous Sanhedrin, if everybody votes guilty, he's uh, acquitted because there's something wrong with Sanhedrin that couldn't find one limutzchus, one merit. That's number one. Number two, when it says death penalty, the, the capital punishment, the Taylor is because that's the best chesed for this person, if indeed it comes to that either because the neshama has become so toxic that this is the only way it can be saved, it can be healed, or because it's a danger to other people, and other reasons given for this. And finally, the deaths themselves were actually the most painless type possible, even though some of them were painful, more than others, as the Chazal talk about, yet, this was sometimes, at the time being, that which was optional, remember, they did not have what we have today, lethal, and uh, which also people say may not be so, or electric chair and so on. So then for those times that was considered if capital punishment was used, those were the acceptable methods. But above all, exactly as you said correctly, because all this still is betachtenim, you have to say there's a spiritual source for it all, and then it manifests in the physical, that's where you can find more ways to explain it. So I looked around. Where is this discussed? It's not discussed a lot, Ixidus. <laughs> One place, yes, in Derech Sharat Shuvah from the Mittler Rebbe. So it's discussed there, and um, let me give you the source. Okay. Chapters 14 and 15, and on, I think 17 and 18 continues as well. But especially chapters 14 and 15, in Der Sharat Shuvah. I also want to refer you to Shalom. Shalom, Parshah's Kiseite, and a Sichem Parshah Pinchas Tov Shin Mem Dalad, where the Rebbe the speaks and says the Dal Misses Bezdin is the L'Umaza, the negative of the Arbosh at Sichem Lehadis when they're saved, Rosh Chaim, which is Chela, Yesurim, Yam, and Midbar. The four things you're supposed to make Mirchas when you're saved. So the L'Umaza is the four misses. The four misses in Kabbalah correspond to the four. Letters of yud kevovke. The p'gam, Pagam means like a wound or blemish of yud Vovke through a sin. If a mitzvah is a connection, a sin is a, is a disconnection. Aveda from the word moving away, disalignment, disalignment from what? From the yud Vovke, which vivifies all of existence and also the human being. So this, that's why we say in the vidui, in Krishna Mishinamita at night, the Pagam that I did in yud and in the hey and the vov and the kei hey, and the final hey which corresponds to the form Mrs. Bezdin, as he explains in Der And what does he say? Skila. We go from the worst to the, down. The, skila is a pigam in the letter Yud. This is what the, Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe says. It's the bitl of Krishma, which is Achdus Hashem itself. That's the, that the bitl of an Hashem to the divine, the the Ayin of Ein that's higher than Seichel, that's the Yud. Prikaseil, a type of mutiny against the essence of the divine. Avedezorah. That's skilah. Chil Shabbos also goes in that category and other sins that touch on the core. This is the wound of the Yud. And the only way to heal from that is something skilla which is by Evan, by a And Evan in Hebrew is Olive Ben. You throw him down from Reish Le'aretz, as he says, and stone him, which means you're taking Alev Ben, which encompasses the entire being, because the Pagam, the wound, is an entire being. So you have to have a Mesidus Nefesh that is, counters the Pagam that happened in the Mesidus Nefesh. That's the central Nukudah here. So skill is the harshest of the four, because you need to completely, under you have to completely uproot this pegam, this wound. The next comes, and you can look it up. The hay. the first hay is sreifa. This is Bitl Tfilah, Someone who didn't daven. This is machshava zaris. It's still in. It's still the hay, It's bina. It's machshava. It's not midas. It's not emotions and it's not actions. But it's machshava zaris, which wound and and uh, damage the mind. In some ways, thoughts of Aveda can be worse than the sin, as he explains there. The mind is not connected to the kus; It's now off on its own, thinking whatever it wants to think. And that burns and destroys part of the Neshama, that part of Bina, the hay. So the Tikkun is by burning out these entire thoughts, that's why it's safe. The Vav corresponds to Hedeg. This is the bitl of Tzitzis. Tzitzis is midas without mechen. This is already a hefsik between mechan and midas. Between mind and emotions. And the tikkun therefore is tzitzis. Headache is what? It's separating. It's, it's, it's a sword. Separating the head from the heart. Because that's the punishment for, or you could say the tikkun. Punishment always is a tikkun, is a repair for the separation where your head and emotions are not aligned. Your mind and emotions are not aligned. And finally the last hay. Is chenek? This is one second. I'm sorry. The hey, the first hey, I said bitl of tefillin. I said tefilla, Bitl of tefillin. The first one was bitl tefilla. Krishna actually. Yeah. The final hey is is is, is Chenek is tefilla, prayer which is about bringing the heart into action. In davening, Aveder you're bringing the heart and you make neachlota, determination, resolution, to act properly. So the wound is not in any deeper level. It's that you took the life out of your action. Action should be invivified by passion. And when a person just does action, technically, mechanically, it's taking out the actions without passion. And that's chenik. That's what he explains in Derech Chaim briefly. How it is in Beruchnis, and from that evolves the Gashmis Dal misses. Now the lesson to us, especially coming from Tishabov, is this: Enish punishment in Tera is not a punishment. It's cause and effect. When you put your hand in fire, God forbid, and, you fire, and your hand gets burned, that's not a punishment. It's the way your hand is reacting to something done wrong. It needs to repair. When you feel pain, it's not a punishment. Pain is a symptom of something wrong. So all forms of the dal Mrs. Besden is about reminding us of something that is wrong, and through the anus you can figure out just like schar mitzvah mitzvah. From the reward of the mitzvah, you can figure out what kind of mitzvah it is. Like he says in Tanya, schar aveda aveda. From an aveda and his punishment, you can see what kind of sin and what kind of pagama did. By seeing what effect it has on you, you can learn from that what wound it is, and therefore learned how to repair it. That's a tremendous lesson in applied Cs. Now let's conclude now with the essays. Tishabov is about to end, and I want to make sure that we conclude before Tishabov concludes. So three essays. essay number. This is all from the top 50, top 40, 40, 50 essays of this past year's contest 2019. They're all available, the new essays, as we post them at, at <laughs> chsidahsupply.com. You'll see all the essays there. You also can receive them in your inbox if you subscribe to Chsidah Supply, to my life, to meaningfullife.com. So the first essay is in English, Transcending Conflict, Noah Kane, age 23, Morristown, New Jersey, a student in Teferaz Bakur in Morristown. We all want healthy, amicable relationships, but most, of, but most, if not all, relationships end up involving disagreement and conflict. Deep, genuine disagreements can wound relationships, and often trying to resolve a disagreement by talking it out often escalates the conflict and wounds the relationship further. An indirect approach to conflict resolution may be the key to healthier relationships. This essay will explain how chassidus can be applied to transcend disagreements and conflict. Specifically, we will discuss a simple one-step conflict resolution strategy that can be implemented in three different ways. This strategy is based on a maimer, of the Alte Rebbe and and the L'Kut and a member of the Rebbe, yes, of the Rebbe Rashab. And then goes on to do that, why can't we get along, analyzing disagreements, the mainstream approach to conflict resolution, the Hasidic approach, hiskalogos, interconnectivity. Hiskalogos based on common purpose, hiskalogos based on common values, hiskalogos by means of a mentor, Repetition, repetition, repetition is key. And with that he concludes a conclusion of practical steps on conflict resolution. Excellent essay for a really important topic. Especially as we come from Tisha B'av. Yes, the next essay. Human Doing. Discover your true essence, a human becoming. Yo- Yochi Ress, age 41, Johannesburg, South Africa. Psychologist. We live in an increasingly automated world. The machines have taken over to some extent, and the new emerging condition of low battery anxiety, for its more fancy name, homophobia, nomophobia, refers to the immense stress when users are separated even from the shortest periods from their devices. This essay first seeks to understand the magnitude of this problem, then looks of examples of how Hasidus provides vital solutions to this crisis both on mental and behavioral levels. It also highlights the focus of Chassidus on the practical integration between awareness and the mind, of the mind and embodied feeling, an action with tefillah having a central role in this and the central concept of personal exile and redemption. It then briefly explores parallels with recent findings in mindfulness and neuroscience research and concludes with an example of some of the unique benefits and value of the perspective and practical implementation of Chassidus. And goes on, Chasing the Dream, Depression, Addiction, and Internal Emptiness, The Power of Tefillah to Keep Us Connected and Awake, Microcosmic Exile, The Blockage of the Throat, Mindfulness and Staying Free and Awake, Making It Real in a Practical Way. Another excellent essay, well, well worth reading, thank you. And finally, the third essay is in Hebrew, Samat Rachim, which is a uh, crossroad, Fork in the road. Hundreds, and I don't exaggerate, if I would say thousands of times we stand, oh, this is also, I I forgot the title. Uh, That's the title. Chaim Moshka Beckerman, Jerusalem, Israel, age 17, student at Beis Sefer, Beis Chana, Chabad, Yerushalayim. So we face this all the time, many times. We need to make a decision between two things and determine which one is the better one and the one that's more fruitful, bringing better results. Even from youngest age, we have this crossroad, this fork in the road, split. The question is, how do you make such a decision? And that's why this essay goes on, according to Chassidus, compared to psychological approaches. How to make a decision when you have these two different paths. How to get the clarity and how to finally decide. What criteria determine what's better. Where our desire comes from. Why we want one versus the other. And how our seichal, our intelligence, comes into play to do the proper due diligence. Another excellent essay. Thank you for that. And with that we conclude this special edition Tisha B'Av Nitcha edition of My Life Chassidus Applied episode 272 As this fast comes to an end we hope for the Gula even right now, tonight not tomorrow Gula Amitiz Vashlema, we're here every Sunday and Chassidus will be taught even after the Gula comes even more so as the Altareb explains in Tanya especially at the end so we're here every Sundays eight to nine PM Khsidis Applied, My Life Khsiddis Applied. Everyone have a blessed week, a week of Nechama, a week of Simchas, and a week of transformation of the negative into the greatest positive to the ultimately to the Gula Amitiz Vashleima.